missed the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. Trudeau keeps bragging about all these vaccines we've ordered. Uh, let's talk about the real reason Canada's being sidelined when it comes to these vaccines and when we actually will possibly get them. Buying local not so easy when all the stores are closed and of course not everybody's online. Now we're going to talk to a Toronto woman who's taking on Amazon and setting up an online site to help buy local and not buy Amazon. And Care Gone Wrong Part 3, we talk about the severe staffing shortages that are making an already huge crisis even worse. Let's get talking. Ever since day one, since I've been premier, you've never, ever heard me criticize the Auditor General. Never. If there's financial issues, I'm here. But to sit in the office and throw hand grenades at, at Dr. Williams and his team and the Minister of Health is totally unacceptable. Totally unacceptable. Stick, stick with looking for value for money. Stick with the job that we hired you for. Don't start pretending you're you're a doctor or a health professional because I can tell you, you aren't. Doug Ford standing by his man, tearing a strip off the Auditor General, telling Bonnie Lissick, follow the dollar, stay in your lane. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, November 25th. Hope all is well in your world. And yeah, the premier coming out swinging at the Auditor General, reminding Bonnie Lissick that uh, her job is to mine the dollars and cents and leave the pandemic response to him. And it was a pr- I was not expecting that. I was expecting news on Christmas today. That's what we were all expecting. But it was a pretty stunning response because the Auditor General is a nonpartisan position. And no sitting government likes these reports because they never get off scot-free and it gives a lot of ammunition to the opposition. I mean, the Wynn government did not get along with Bonnie Lissick at all. They felt she was too political. And uh, clearly the premier is now thinking the same thing. But he's not necessarily wrong because Lissick's job is to make sure government departments are held to account, you know, that we're getting value for dollar. But Ford says Lissick's playing politics by weighing in on how his government should handle this thing and who should be managing it. I have some serious, serious problems with this report. To say that Dr. Williams wasn't leading this response, it just isn't right. It's actually wrong. This does nothing but undermine our entire health team. And I can't stand for this. And I'll tell you, I won't stand for this. So it was pretty interesting, and he was, uh, I think pissed is an understatement. He was not happy today. And so here's why he was so hot under the collar. Uh, Lissick, and and the report's very long, but Lissick says the Ford uh, government's response has been confusing, uh, delayed, underfunded, too reactive, which, okay, fair enough. It has been confusing. We have been, at all levels of government, way too slow to react. And so that can be justified. But it is also unprecedented. So what do we have to compare it against? But we heard for months, of course, to the feds, from the feds, it's low risk, it's low risk, and we are prepared. And of course, we weren't. And now we're seeing, you know, that we uh, didn't learn anything from SARS. And Lissick pointed to SARS, stating that, you know, the government failed to follow the lessons learned during that crisis. 
that public health units had been kept in the dark on the decisions being made and were completely unprepared when the announcements were made by Ford earlier in the spring, that there were delays in decisions about long-term care that led to more cases, maybe even deaths. But her harshest criticism, no question, was directed at Dr. Williams, who she accused of not fully exercising his powers, like uh, closing schools sooner, stopping travel, uh, issuing mask orders, and failed to make sure that testing and tracing was in place. She blames Williams for creating confusion in giving different messages. And of course, you know, the one example we can look back at is March break, where you remember on on one day, uh, you had Ford telling folks, go enjoy your March break. It was the day after March, uh, it was March 12th, the day after the WHO declared the pandemic. And Ford was asked, like, can, can we go traveling? And he's like, yeah, yeah, go, go to March break. And then the next day, Williams issues a memo not to travel. So it contradicted uh, the premier's instruction. It caused a lot of creation. And so Lissick blamed the Ford government for dragging its feet and failing to identify community spread that she says Williams knew about. And of course, then 2.5 million Canadians come back from March break and they were not adequately checked. There were no balances, no testing, no tracing in place. And so Bonnie Lissick is standing by her report. Um, I stand behind the reports. I stand behind the factual accuracy of the reports. And um, I think our intent in issuing these reports is is to say is not to say, you know, everyone was caught off guard during this, and people make the best th- decisions they can in a type of crisis. But what we're saying is, in a time of crisis, the systems that people needed weren't in place, and we're showing what the consequences of that are. There you go, and so she also goes after Ford. Um, on a sole source consultant who was paid almost $5 million to help build a recovery plan and deal with school reopenings because apparently the emergency plans were so outdated and apparently we don't have anyone in that big bloated bureaucracy who can do the job, which is scary. She also questioned the health table and said that it wasn't being led by Dr. Williams, that the table ballooned from 21 people to a very bloated, bureaucratic mess of 500 people that were not health experts, but full of politicians and stakeholders that ended up slowing the response and muddying the message. And Ford made very clear, you weren't there, Bonnie Lissick, you wouldn't know, and he is standing by the doctor, not the bean counter. These are people who put everything they have into guiding us through an impossible situation, an unprecedented crisis and we owe them a debt of gratitude. For the Auditor General to undermine them right now as they work morning, noon, and night to get us through the second wave, I have to question that. And last night, uh, the government uh, voted to extend Williams' contract, so he is not going into retirement. And absolutely, the buck should stop at Ford's feet because he's in charge. He has said it will stop at his feet. But then you got liberal leader Stephen Del Duca out there wagging his pointy finger. And he should not. Put your finger away because Bonnie Lisk makes very, very, very clear in this report that his government is a very big reason why we're in the mess. And she points back to 2003. And through the entire Win mcginty government, which ignored all of her reports that question decayed health structures, things like long-term care, outdated technology, things like fax machines that are still being used in this pandemic response. 
And she had been warning about pandemic preparedness plans for years, even dating back to 2013. So Del Duca can be outraged as he want, but it was his government that ignored those warnings and then got rid of protective equipment in 2017. Where she goes out of her lane and what she, you know, where Ford has a point is because she's criticizing this government for not doing things before any other. She, she heaped praise upon BC for its handling, yet fails to mention they only put in their masking rules last week. And she pointed to their infection rate, but their infection rate is higher than Ontario. So she's wrong on a couple of things. And she also muddles her own message, calling for the removal of political oversight. And she wants top health experts and unelected officials to take charge. Now, so, now for someone whose job is to hold elected officials to account, that advice right there removes accountability. So she's wrong. Because the premier does have a job. He has to listen to the medical advice, weigh all the competing factors, and decide what's best for the public at large. And what Lissick is saying is, get rid of the political oversight, which defies her very own logic, not to mention her mandate. So we got a war of words, and there's blame, I think, on both sides here, but it sure is going to be interesting moving forward. And I think we should keep in mind, you know, while we're heaping all the blame here, let us remember there is plenty of blame to go around at all levels. And if we're going to go after Ford, keep in mind that it was the Trudeau government that failed to listen even to their own scientists, which said in, in December, there's this thing coming and it's dangerous and you got to get ahead of it. And they ignored them. They failed to get the rapid testing, failed to shut the borders that are still streaming in uh, infected people. And of course, now the big one, and it is a big one. Sure, we've bought millions of vaccines. But we can't get access to them because, once again, the Trudeau government dragged its feet on buying them. And because we don't produce them here, all we can do is watch others get vaccinated around the world while we wait for months. Well, it doesn't matter what portfolio of vaccines that we have if Canadians can't get it until exactly. 2030. Exactly. The Prime Minister didn't answer the question I just asked him, which is very material. He, sp he says he spent all this money on developing vaccine manufacturing capacity. Did he, his industry minister, his procurement minister, whoever, even bother to negotiate the rights for us to manufacture those vaccines here at home? The Honourable Prime Minister. There was health critic Michelle Rebel-Garner uh, calling the Prime Minister out about our vaccine procurement. And uh, we've learned with the Liberals that if you repeat the talking point long enough, eventually it will become true, or as they've started to do as of today, you just blame Stephen Harper. Apparently now this is all his fault. But the uh, Trudeau government, you know, constantly is repeating that they've ordered you know, millions of vaccines from several companies. And that may all be true, but what's the point of having them if you can't actually get them? And the reality is, as the Prime Minister has admitted as of Tuesday, Canadians won't see vaccines until March. That's what he said yesterday. And that's because he claims Canada, unlike most countries in the G7, can't produce vaccines here. And so, of course, the countries that do produce them will make sure their own people get it first. And because we don't have production facilities to make them here, which isn't really true, um, there is one projection uh, facility in Quebec that can produce many of these vaccines. But no one in that government bothered to secure the rights to make the vaccines. And so to top it all off, there will be further delayed 
because we were last to order any of these vaccines. And so we have to wait to the back of the line behind several countries like India, which did not drag its feet. Michelle Rempel-Garner is the health critic. She joins us now in a busy day in question period for you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. No matter how many times a question is asked, and you must have asked it half a dozen times, you know, when is the vaccine coming for Canada? We get non-answers from the prime minister. But interestingly, Dominic LeBlanc is saying tonight, you know, and he's adamant about this, that we're going to receive millions of vaccines in January. Uh, Is this what you're hearing? No, uh, not at all. I mean, that was the heavy sigh for me earlier. Uh, Here's the reality. We had senior health officials in front of our parliamentary committee on Friday. We were asking these questions and we asked it to them instead of the minister because um, they, you know, the Trudeau government's been very, you know, obtuse on these issues. They said that at best, we would be looking at approximately 6 million doses sometime in early April. That was, the, that was the estimate that they gave to us at the Health Committee. And even then, that wasn't a guarantee. So I don't, I, I, here's what I think happened. I think Dominic Leblanc was put out um, because uh, Navdeep Baines, the industry minister, gave a disastrous interview last night. Um, they, they, they're sort of going through, uh, you know, the hitting order to, to get a minister who can put out some decent talking points. And I think he was just making some stuff up. Um, and that's really concerning. Uh, we've heard today numerous countries around the world. I mean, even just a few hours ago, Alex, we heard that about 26 European Union nations mm-hmm. would be in a position to get vaccines by Christmas. Where's our plan? And uh, it's not just me saying this. Public health officials, scientists, leaders across the country are going, Canadians need better, we need certainty, and we're not getting it from this government. Well, there has to be some kind of um, expectation management. I mean, if Dominic LeBlanc is going to go out and tell Canadians, don't worry, they're going to be here by January, that is a that is a pretty big promise because that's not the kind of promise you can cancel. I mean, you might get away with the we stuff, you might get away with the blackface stuff, but when we're talking about vaccinations that not only will save lives, but the lives of frontline workers, the lives of, you know, the elderly in long-term care, uh, and will save what little economy we have left, um, you know, if the delivery doesn't come through in January and it drags on for months, uh, we are going to see, I think, real anarchy in this uh, in this country. Well, especially if Canadians are watching countries around the world get vaccinated before we do, right? Uh, I I certainly think that there's going to be a lot of dissatisfaction. But there's another reason why we need a timeline on the vaccine outside of all making sure the logistics are sound and that, you know, all the reviews have been done, etc. If the majority of Canadians aren't going to have access to a vaccination by, let's say, till next year or 2022, which is, you you know, like like six million doses, which was what they told us on Friday. Mm -hmm. That's not, especially if there's requirements for double dosing, like that's a very small fraction of the Canadian population. If if that's not happening, then what are we doing in the meantime, right? And this is why we've been pushing the government to also be looking at two other areas, which is, you know, I've talked about this many times, capacity for rapid and at-home testing, rules around that guidelines around that and supply for that. But also, let's start looking at the data. Um, Who do we need to protect? Who's most vulnerable? Um, How do we do that? Can we target our measures more effectively? I just feel like provincial governments, they don't have all the tools that they could have right now to be making those decisions. And I just, 
you know, I, I'm really worried about Canadians just saying, I can't comply with these continued lockdown measures um, for another year. I, I think a lot of Canadians will just be like, no, I, we can't do this. So well, well certainly we, with we, the mental we health issues. And, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't be pushing them into that decision. We need to be giving Canadians tools, not crazy town. And and so let's say the, the vaccinations arrive in January. Let's just hope, let, let's just pretend that that's a real thing. How long is it going to take for Health Canada to approve these things? I mean, the Prime Minister made it clear when it came to rapid testing, he was not going to interfere in the process. Uh, but if, if we've got a, you know, the United States, the UK, India, all these other countries that are vaccinating in January, uh, how long is it going to take for, for Health Canada to, to stamp the approval? I asked that very question, I think, five times in a row on Friday with no response. And the government should be able to give us a timeline on that. It's completely reasonable like for them. to they, they should be saying things like, OK, well, we've got this data in the process so far. We still need to get X, Y and Z. Uh, this is what we're reviewing for. This is approximately how long it's going to take. And this is why it's going to take that long. Instead, we're getting, you know, just like, and I was asking Health Canada officials, and they gave, you know, some pretty pedantic responses that it's the job of the health minister to reach down to her, her bureaucrats and say, uh, we all need to do better. And I know people are working hard, um, but this is not peacetime, right? This, this is a national crisis and there are different expectations. And that's what I have been pushing the government to realize on behalf of Canadians. Yeah, I mean, it's going to not just be discouraging. I mean, a lot of lives are going to be destroyed the longer we are without um, these vaccinations. And and one of the, the debates around this and something the prime minister said outside of his cottage on uh, Tuesday is that one of the reasons is because we don't produce vaccines here. OK, well, we used to be a leader in that, uh, you know, five decades ago and you know, 50 years ago. Um, but we do, in fact, have facilities. Amir Atharan, the uh, professor who came on my show in the summer warning of this very thing. Um, saying that, you know, we had waited too long to procure vaccines and he had warned everybody, um, you know, he has pointed out that we do have facilities uh, in places we like do. Montreal, and I think we do in in, in, in Winnipeg, um, to, to do some kind of production. But even if we did, uh, the, the person that procured the, the contracts didn't get the signing rights to, to, to the licensing. Is that right? Yeah, so this is a question that I raised. I mean, in a, in a life prior to politics, um, I did a lot of work commercializing early stage medical research. And this is kind of like a basic question for um, vaccine production and other types of, you know, therapeutic production is like, you can actually negotiate to have the right to manufacture. That's part of a con contractual negotiation. So this is why I asked about in the House this week, like, you know, even if we had the capacity to do it, which we do, um, in spite of what the prime minister is saying, uh, we could. So we should. Ha we need to have the rights to be able to do it. And um, what we heard from officials on Friday was that I don't even think that the government bothered to ask. And uh, that's pretty, pretty brutal. <laughs> Well, they were a bit busy. Day. I mean, like this, this is a government that was mired in scandal all summer long, then prorogued Parliament. I mean, they, they didn't, the vaccine procurement happened very, very late. 
Um, and so I think they were caught flat-footed on all of this, including the rapid testing. Uh, but the bottom line is, I mean, is, is there a possibility that Canada, a G7 nation, um, a, a country that just last week was being, you know, <laughs> isolated because we had too much vaccine and we should have to share it around the world, but now we seem to be behind the most impoverished nations. I mean, is there a possibility that we could be waiting months on end for this thing? I don't know. I mean, that's what I'm trying to find out. I mean, if I was the health minister, I, Alex, I'd tell you, but uh, we've got a government who's being very opaque, uh, not transparent, and I kind of fear for the worst uh, because you know, if there was something to celebrate, you can, or if there was a photo op to be had, you can be sure Justin Trudeau would be there. Um, and the fact that we've gone through several ministers in, you know, the media cycle over the last couple of days because they've all had really bad interviews. The, the, you know, you saw you played part of question period today or the segment before you just did. It's not great. Um, so I think across political stripe, Canadians need to be asking uh, for these answers, demanding them, uh, because, you know, if people start seeing... Uh, in Canada, start seeing folks in the U.S. getting vaccinated in two weeks or start hearing about their relative in the United Kingdom getting an appointment for their COVID vaccine in two weeks or being able to rapid test at home, going to Costco and buy kits of rapid tests, as you can, you know, you mm-hmm. soon will be able to do in the U.S. People are going to be rightly upset and we shouldn't be at that point as a G7 country. No, we should not. And nonetheless, uh, you know, if we come, you know, if we become the only country not vaccinated, we become the pariah that we were in 2003. And, um, you know, when no one's coming to do business here and again, you're isolated. I mean, there's a huge amount of, um, uh, as we know, we paid such a dear price for that. Uh, the longer this thing goes on, the, the worse off we are and, and, and all these businesses and, and owners of the business. Well, I'll, uh, wait and see what the, uh, question period tomorrow brings and um and hopefully you'll get desk right now and i'm planning it so <laughs> let's talk again soon <laughs> well i'll see i'll see if you can actually get an, an answer outside the talking point i know it's tough but you can do it and i appreciate your time on this thanks so much have a good evening that is Michelle Rempel Gardner joining us. And uh, I got to be honest, question period can be pretty entertaining, but, um, you know, you, you get these non-answers. And then at one point, Trudeau started mansplaining the procurement process to, 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 to Michelle uh, Garner. And I was like, oh, really? You need to explain, really? Maybe explain it to the minister of procurement who clearly didn't do her job. All right. Well, if you listen to this show, then you know I'm all about buying local. And of course, with Peel and Toronto being shut down, we keep getting the old buy local, buy local. But you know, it is easier said than done because how do you buy local when a lot of small businesses just aren't set up to offer online services? And because of this, a lot of people just say, eh, I'll go to Amazon. It's just easy. Well, a local Toronto woman doesn't want Canadians giving Jeff Bezos one more cent of our money. To that, I say hallelujah. So she's created an online service and trying to do so so that local businesses that don't have this online presence can put their stock online in an organized manner that will offer Canada-wide shipping, curbside pickup, and a way for us to actually support businesses locally in our community instead of giving more money to a foreign billionaire. Her name, Allie Haberstroh. She uh, has a social media managing job at Code Media. She joins us now. Good to have you, Allie. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I love this kind of grassroots initiative that is so much in its infancy. It's very local, Mm. but where does it stand right now? How did you come up with this uh, particular kind of mission? 
Well, at first, it didn't even feel like a mission. It was just on Sunday, I uh, just started a Google document, uh, just putting together a list. A lot of small businesses have just recently started doing curbside and online, and I think it's kind of hard to get the word out. So Mm -hmm. I just basically wanted to remove any obstacle or excuse that anyone could have about convenience and small business and just put it all in one place so that that sort of you know, way of thinking is removed. Um, And yeah, I just want to make sure that it's basically like a mall directory at the end of the day. You just look through all the categories, but everything in there is local. Right. I mean, it's not just a no-brainer that you go local. For some businesses, they're very small. They're just not designed to to, to kind of be online for that. They haven't had time Mm -hmm. to pivot to that. And Mm -hmm. so it becomes very daunting, I think, to a lot of small businesses that probably see no hope in getting any Christmas traffic. And so right now, what are you trying to do as far as getting this off the ground? I just want to make sure there's as much room for submissions as possible right now. So um, initially, I mean, at at its current stage, it is, in fact, a Google document that I really thought maybe 100 people would look at. Mm -hmm. Um, But that has changed very, very rapidly. So luckily, a lot of people have reached out to me um, to help me. It's still technically just me, but um, I'm currently uh, working on the back end of a website that should be ready by the end of the week um, with some help from uh, a lovely gentleman named Baker who reached out to me. And then, uh, yeah, it should be ready by Friday so that Basically, my goal is to have um, people be able to submit any business they want um, and so that it will automatically be on the website. So you can just go through instead of hundreds. I hope that by even like next week is thousands Mm -hmm. um, just because people can yeah, uh, set it up really simply so that um, even like beyond small business can submit themselves, which I think is the most important thing right now is just quantity. Right. And and this is one of those things that starts small, but it really could take off because, you know, at the end of the day, it is in our it is in our interest in the bigger picture to make sure that small businesses survive. Jeff Bezos doesn't oh, totally. need money. I mean, he does not need us to no. give him money. He's got money. And, and so it's it's doable. It's just a matter of where does this thing go? And does this thing even have a name yet? Currently, it's called not Amazon. Um, there you go. Yeah, I I feel like there's so many places it can go. And there's already been people who've reached out to me about doing it in Montreal and St. John's and Vancouver and Ottawa. Um, We currently just added a Halifax page. My friend Emily Roth added one for Halifax. So currently there's 300 small businesses from Halifax you can look through too. Um, But yeah, I guess the future of it truly is like um, just expanding to multiple cities and I think you're right. Like, I just think the culture of any city is really the small business. And with Toronto just being the most diverse city in the world, I think that we owe it to small businesses to, um, you know, put in the effort to make sure they stay around. Because I really do think that, like, all the foundational things that everybody loves about Toronto comes from that. So Mm -hmm. I think that if people want to preserve that sort of thing, that, yeah, it's completely also it's fun and it's fabulous. And the products you can get through small vendors are just so much more special than, um, you know, something you'd buy in a click on Amazon. Without small business, we don't have communities. I mean, if, if people totally. don't like gentrification, they're going to hate what post-COVID, uh, you know, <laughs> Toronto or Hamilton or any of these cities looks like because the soul of a city and a community certainly are small businesses. It's where people gather. Totally. It's where people visit. It's where ideas are born. It's where you just get all these little unique um, you know, thoughts and it's where you just, it's 
how you get kind of the, the backbone of a community. And so Absolutely. if a small business wanted to get into this, how can they? I mean, are you going to have this up and running before the whole Christmas season is done or gone? Well, my work has kindly let me take tomorrow off to finish the website. <laughs> so hopefully by, honestly, hopefully by Friday, um, at least Toronto's portion will be all done. Um, so even through that, um, I think that it'll open the door to a lot of small businesses and they can certainly submit everything that they need to in order to get started. Um, hopefully before this weekend, my goal is to just have it as um, far back from Christmas as possible. Um, and even now on the document, there's still about 300 businesses for Black Friday um, mm-hmm. that you can look through too, just because so many of them have deals and um, curbside pickup. And it's basically, to me, just the savings are the same and the convenience is almost the same, especially if you can just walk down the street and pick it up. So, yeah, the goal is to have these businesses making <laughs> as much money as possible by um, Friday and uh, hopefully beyond to Christmas. Yeah, I mean, it starts out small, these ideas, uh, um, and mm-hmm. but as you know, they can snowball very quickly and um, and take on a life of their own very quickly. And, and it just is really a matter, I think, at this point of getting the webpage up and getting word out for small businesses, be it here in Toronto okay. or anywhere else, to go to this area, correct? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that's all it's about. Yeah. Okay. So what do people need to know then about what you're offering um, and how they can get involved, either on the buyer end? Oh, yeah. So basically, all you have to do currently, um, the URL is just not-amazon.ca. And if you wanted to go there just as a shopper right now, there's tons of things that you can choose from. It's all sorted by category. So if you wanted to start your Christmas shopping early, you can just peruse the site really easily right now. It's just um, everything's just linked to the seller's page and everything Mm -hmm. on there offers shipping and curbside. So Pretty much as a buyer, you can go do whatever you want on there right now as it is. And then as a seller, hopefully, yeah, by Friday, you'll be able to um, submit your own business. And I think where the sort of um, roadblock is right now is that I've been doing all the submissions by myself. And it's just a matter of, like, how much time that takes. So by Friday, I think everything will be ready to go for people submitting themselves. And then everything will just be amalgamated in one place so that shoppers and, you know, sellers can... uh, have a big community online now. <laughs> and, and how is this different than, let's say, than Kijiji? Someone will say, well, isn't this just Kijiji? We've already got it. And what kind of precautions are in place so that businesses are protected and so are the buyers and sh- you know shoppers? I don't really see a total risk factor right now. Really, it's just um, an amalgamation of links. Um, uh, so yeah, all the website's going to be, and all the website is right now is just Let's say you were looking for home decor for a present. You can just go to the home decor section and go. It's just simply like a link to their online store. So if you wanted to just go through that, um, it's just the same as like if you were to know about these places already, but it's just all sort of in one place. So it's like you can sort of explore the city without having to leave your house, thankfully. Well, it is uh, just a baby in its infancy, but we uh, mm-hmm. sure do hope it works. And uh, good for you for uh, stepping up and helping, uh, you know, buy local in a away from this country and uh, not give Jeff Bezos one more cent. Uh, The website, no, he does not need it. And uh, (laughs) and we definitely do need the small business. So it's www.not-amazon.ca. Ali will continue following your journey and hope that it takes off for you and uh, more, more so for the small business. But I appreciate your time on this. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, www.not- 
Amazon.ca. It is just being built right now for small businesses, but it is a way to buy local. Good to have you here on this Wednesday. You know, Ontario's long-term care homes are experiencing so many challenges, including staffing shortages. And they have been since well before the COVID-19 pandemic. And that warning's coming from the province's long-term care COVID-19 commission and from advocates who are seeing this thing firsthand of the resulting devastation. To look at how we got here and where improvements needed to be made, here's Global's Brianna Carnegie with part three of Care Gone Wrong Inside Ontario's Nursing Homes. In this field, you're always short. But we work with what we have. Personal support worker Maggie Giddens tested positive for COVID-19 in March. She was caring for the first patient to contract the virus at Mark Haven Home for Seniors near Toronto and wore only a surgical mask as protection. As a result of that, I almost lost my life. Lack of access and direction for personal protective equipment. Fear about bringing COVID-19 home to families, unwilling to work in conditions, or testing positive and needing to self-isolate. Ontario's long-term care study shows these reasons made staffing shortages worse in the long-term care sector during the pandemic. The staffing levels are critically, I would say, almost dangerous right now. 30% less than before the pandemic. So this is an emergency. There have been months that have gone by without any substantial recruitment uh, and getting staff into the homes to save people's lives. And it needs to happen now. During the first wave of COVID-19, 38 homes struggled with critical staffing shortages. Dr. Ahmet Arya is a palliative care physician who works in long-term care facilities. I saw seniors that were dying of COVID-19. They were suffering. They definitely were not enough staff to look after them. And the immense tragedy that I witnessed with my own eyes is something that's deeply traumatic to me. Staff refused to work without adequate PPE supply. For those who stayed, the lack of direction created fear and confusion. One minute you're told you're not supposed to do this. One minute you're told you do this. You know, so you don't know which way you're going. Health workers, administrators, family caregivers and residents were kind of left to navigate many of these very important policies on their own. Once research found evidence of asymptomatic COVID-19 spread, the government limited workers to one long-term care facility, although critics say the directive came later than it should have. And Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, points out it doesn't apply to temporary agency staff, which many homes rely on rather than having all full-time workers. It really creates inconsistencies relative to the policy. So practically, if they had been restricted, our staffing situation would have been far worse. For much of the pandemic, family were not allowed to visit their loved ones in long-term care. CEO of advocacy group CanAge, Laura Tamblin-Watts, says while it helped limit virus spread, in many cases had worse outcomes than not. Residents were deprived of that additional care as many families help with feeding, washing, exercise and social support. 
the reason that some of these facilities have gotten away with not having enough staff is because of essential family caregivers and they were kind of the glue that held things together in many circumstances so it for sure made the crisis much worse more than a month into the pandemic today we'll be making a formal request to bring in those extra reinforcements this includes resources from Public Health Agency of Canada and Canadian Forces personnel. Ontario requested soldiers to help stabilize five homes. We would have preferred not to have had to have the military, but the reality was we needed whatever help we could get. The government later announced supports from groups like the Red Cross and hospitals. If they're having infection protection and control issues or staffing issues, the hospitals can go in and help out. Ontario declared the start of its second wave in September. COVID-19 cases began an even steeper climb, and the province's top doctors warned of impacts on long-term care. As the level of community transmission goes up, inevitably the infections are happening in long-term care and other congregate settings. The Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health in Toronto, Dr. Samir Sinha, knows lessons have been learned from the spring, but still... With a lack of staffing and with other issues in terms of the levels of community spread, these homes continue to remain vulnerable. The provincial government made a commitment in the fall to increase the care standard for residents to an average of four hours each day. Right now, it's closer to 2.75. This is a monumental step forward. It will mean hiring thousands and thousands of new support staff. But the promise is for 2024-25, and critics say that's too late. Extremely disappointing. Four years is too long for seniors to wait for the care that they need, and they need it right now. People are dying. I mean, they're dying right now in long-term care homes in conditions that are unspeakable. So something needs to be done right away to get the staff in the homes. And some experts say four hours is not good enough. York University professor Pat Armstrong says research shows that number should be closer to six. Given the extreme complexity of care needs of those people who finally get into long-term care, uh, especially in this province. We know that the funding model and the care model and the building model and the staffing model actually don't work. Ontario's Long-Term Care Association says we have to completely rethink how to provide care as the number of seniors is expected to double in the next 25 years. We're not going to be able to build enough beds for that. To improve living and working conditions across the sector, Ontario's long-term care staffing study has made five recommendations. Increase funding and the number of staff, change the culture of long-term care, improve working conditions to retain staff and provide better care, provide effective leadership and expertise, and attract and prepare the right people for employment. We have to make the work more attractive, for one thing. We have quite high turnover rates. Advocates say their main sticking points are full-time work, paid sick leave, and a living wage of at least $25 an hour. We need to recognize that this is skilled work. It's also about continuity of care. You know where things are and you know the residents. PSWs perform some of the most critical frontline work in these nursing homes and they've left the profession in droves because they're not paid well enough and they're treated very poorly. 
I asked Premier Doug Ford when he would deliver on these items, but instead got this response. We're asking for 100% testing for staff and and uh, visitors going into long-term care. At least uh, they know they're, they're going into a, a safe environment. A light is being shone on long-term care right now, even though it's for all the wrong reasons. Advocates say now is the time to improve conditions for staff and ultimately the residents that live there. Let's make sure that it's as good as it can be for people in the last years of their lives and for those people who provide the care. We can't let this moment pass to, to make it better. For Global News, I'm Brianna Carnegie. Tomorrow, our feature series looks at how the stop to the spread of COVID-19 in long-term care homes is going. We'll find out why we continue to move personal support workers between facilities and whether rapid testing will ever be a long-term solution. You can join us, of course, Monday through Friday, 6.30, live through 10, here on Point. This is Alex Pearson on Global News Radio.